Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The way was long and weary. But gallantly they strode, a country lad and lassie, along the heavy road. The night was dark and stormy, but blithe of heart were they, for shining in the distance the lights of London lay. O gleaming lights of London, that gem of the city's crown, what fortunes be within you, O lights of London town? George Robert Sims, Lights of London. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knuckles. You've got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You don't understand culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, October the 26th, 2012. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, Sir Henry Wellcome, from uh, 1853 to 1936, was the founder of the Wellcome Trust. He was a businessman, collector, philanthropist. He was born in the American Wild West and ended his days as a knight of the British realm. And uh, he's responsible for co-founding a multinational pharmaceutical company that mastered modern techniques of advertising, such as promotion, image, and branding. And the wealth that Wellcome's company brought him was invested in amassing an astonishing collection of historical objects. And at the time of his death, it was larger than uh, most of Europe's most famous museums. We're here at the Wellcome Trust today. With me is Russ McFarlane. He's the Academic Engagement Officer at the Wellcome Library. He's soon to be giving a lecture on the history of medicine. That's on the 2nd of November. More on that shortly. Also, thinking that she'd left her geek past behind her after graduating in physics from Imperial College, uh, geek songstress Helen Arney proved herself wrong when she started writing songs inspired by science and we'll be talking about her tour around the uk as well carla Connolly is an ex mortuary now i've got to prepare myself for this she's an ex mortuary technician uh, she's the pathology museum technician at st bart's she's also a member of the shoreditch sisters wi and the shoreditch branch of the clandestine cake club which i've been not looking forward to saying she's responsible for uh, women with bite and eat your heart out two events coming up in the month ahead hello you all Hello. Hello. Well, we are here in uh, sort of a back room in the Wellcome Trust, which is distinct from the, I've been instructed, it's very different from the uh, Wellcome Institute and the, the whole brace of other Wellcome institutions. Absolutely, yes. Uh, anytime anybody says the word Wellcome Institute within the Wellcome Trust, a giant alarm goes off like a wrong answer in QI. Um, we're actually in, we're in the Wellcome Library, one of the world's largest libraries devoted to the history of medicine. And the joys of the collections here, which are built up and built upon the, the, the 
the objects and items Henry Wellcome collected during his lifetime is the vast scale and the vast range of topics that are covered here. Uh, on the way to this room, uh, we walked past a shelf in the library, which um, sums up the breadth of material that you have here. Uh, not only things about London, but also, as the, the shelf said, everything from alcoholic beverages to atomic disasters. Let's not ponder how the two of those things can be connected. So if anything had uh, a living pulse, and then at times if it didn't, there's a fair chance Henry Welcome was interested in it and its place in culture. You guys all inhabit roughly the same sort of uh, spheres. I, I get the impression your paths have crossed more than once. Carla, how does the Welcome Trust cross over with the, the sort of stuff that's going on at St Bart's? Um, well, here at the Welcome, they have a lot of exhibitions that relate to things such as death, um, anatomical wax models. For example, there was once a couple of years ago, a few years ago actually, called Exquisite Bodies. Um, and that was a really great exhibition. And coming up next month, I believe there's one all about death, a self-portrait. So I spend quite a bit of time here having a look around the exhibitions and definitely perusing the gift shop and having a slice of cake, I have to say. <laughs> yes, I think we'll be talking a lot about cake today, which is something I wasn't really expecting at the Welcome Trust. Helen, Arnie, what was the last thing that brought you through the door of the Welcome Trust? Oh, the last thing was actually uh, the launch of a book called The Geek Manifesto by Mark Henderson, who's now the, I think, communications director of the Welcome couldn't, I'm going to get the wrong word, so I'm just going to say the welcome thingy. Just have, have trust in yourself. Yeah, the welcome thingy. Uh, so he, uh, he's written this wonderful book about getting science to engage more in politics and uh, to try and understand why science and politics have been so separate uh, because it's quite a crucial time in science at the moment because uh, the government has restricted funding and unless uh, scientists and those associated with them start lobbying the government to uh, get the same amount of money as they've always had for science funding, um, then uh, science funding will be decreased in real terms. And it's, that's, that's something I feel very strongly about. And that's what uh, brought me through the doors of the Wellcome Trust last time and to buy Christmas presents for my family. Uh, the gift shop getting lots of uh, <laughs> plugs here by the looks of it. I knock about in the arts sphere more than the science sphere, although there's, there's certainly plenty of crossover. And the Wellcome has got a bit of a reputation as being reasonably well-to-do, fairly buoyant financially and, uh, and supportive importantly of the arts could we could we say something about that yeah i mean it's as part of the the trust mission to um spend and fund research into not only just uh, biomedicine but also to invest and promote science in all its cultural forums. Uh, the Trust spends a vast amount of money each year on a whole range of broadcast projects, public engagement projects. But the key to it all is the work that goes on in Welcome Collection in the building we're in today. Um, as Carly was saying earlier on, great exhibitions, um, lots of visiting uh, speakers, very different kinds of events and often exhibitions as well that draw upon the collections of the Wellcome Library in very detailed, very interesting ways. Let me gauge the extent to which you guys are scientists or other things, because uh, of course we're in a scientific setting, and of course your work is science-focused, but I'm, I'm thinking well, you're an assistant curator, you're creating music around science. To what extent are you scientists? Uh, well, I, about 12 years ago now, I graduated from my physics degree and then went off to work for uh, the BBC to work in classical music radio for about eight years. Uh, so I've now finally completed that Venn diagram, uh, one circle of music and one circle of science. And now what I do now is, is I suppose, uh, geek songstress is science and comedy. The, uh, the major thing I do is Festival of the Spoken Nerd, which is a big science comedy show we're taking around the country at the moment. Uh, but I finally found a way to mix those two things that I had to choose between when I left school you know that's the tough th that's the tough thing I think we all understand that and I'm sure many listeners do as well you leave school you have to choose between arts and science you have to choose between arts and science but it's not that easy uh, but, but it sounds as though you get to cherry pick you, you seem to have the benefit of being a gentleman dabbler to some degree uh, well, it's one thing being a gentleman dabbler, but then trying to pay the rent as being a gentleman dabbler is, is somewhat more difficult, and that, that's, uh, that's the thing. I, I think arts and science should be uh, much less of a battlefield and a bit more of a, a knitting club. Yeah, I totally agree with that, actually. My, my background is in um, forensic and biomolecular science, and then obviously a lot of anatomy and pathology. Basically, it's like how you solve crimes, you know, using clues from autopsies, and, you know, a lot of things like virology, biology, um, microbiology. So I do have quite a sciencey background, but I was always in love with art, and I always loved history as well. So for me, 
being able to now curate a medical museum, which is obviously scientific, but it's certainly more historical than scientific, um, is perfect for me because now I get to cherry pick. So, you know, I spend a lot of my days possibly teaching young children about biology um, and the science is still there but then I host events all about history of medicine and we have art exhibitions too and anybody will tell you that if you look at original anatomical drawings by people like Vesalius they're not just science they are art and there's definitely a marriage between the two. I know ever since CSI popped up on TV, all of those courses for doing that sort of forensic studies of, uh, of, of corpses and stuff like that, they're oversubscribed. And, um, but what, there must have come a point when you decided, actually, I'm not going to take that course, that popular uh, direction, I'm going to go off in this. What, what was the the point where you decided to go this other way? Well, I'm actually a lot older than I look. So when I did forensic science, it was when um, it wasn't even that popular yet, and it was actually forensic and biomolecular science. Now you can do forensics and drama, I'm told. So that's a very different... Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a very different area to what I had to do. But the foren- forensic doesn't actually mean what you think. It means it means analytical. So it's really more about kind of using analytical sciences, and you can either use them in the forum of the law, or you can use them in any other way. So when you see these TV shows, shows for example about mummies that have been forensically analyzed they haven't they've been analytically analyzed because unless it's been used in a courtroom it's not forensic so really once I did that it just it just means doing a science that you have to pay a lot of attention to you learn very different techniques which you can use um, for example if you were going to study ancient historical documents it would be the same techniques so I didn't really have to make a decision I think it's it's like you know it, it's the Venn diagram that we talked about mm. before it, it all sort of adds up to one really Venn diagrams Ross Oh, I suppose I'm, I'm the outlier, uh, outlier. I come from uh, an arts background. My qualification um, after a history and social anthropology degree was in archives. So I come at things from an archival background. But a lot of the work I do here is taking uh, academic groups of different backgrounds in here. So it can be history groups, it could be design students, and trying to get, with, get them to sort of involve themselves with the collections and interpret them with the disciplinary knowledge that they have. But what's interesting about uh, the science, and this is where the two speakers have mentioned this already, is positioning that in its historical and cultural context. So, for example, from the point of view of um, forensics, we have in the collections here um, the notes of almost the godfather of uh, forensic science in some ways, a man called Sir Bernard Spilsbury. So the case notes we have of Spilsbury are fantastically detailed notes, but they are situated within the times in which they are made. So they uh, describe crime scenes and almost, they almost offer a social history of death in London in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, anybody who's ever read any, any novels by Patrick Hamilton, this is a territory you're moving into when you come across the, the Spilsbury uh, archive here. What sort of challenges do you face in terms of achieving engagement with science, which of course can be a bit of a turn-off just as an idea to some people? Well, I think, it's, I think it depends about the sort of the, the horror of turning away from it. I mean, the exhibition um, that was mentioned just, just now, that Carla mentioned a couple of years ago in Welcome Collection, Exquisite Bodies, was teasing out the, the difficulties that ca- came with um, these wax models from the 18th and 19th centuries. And in those periods, how much of uh, the use of those objects where it was salaciousness and how much was educative. But I just get the sensation that, uh, maybe this is speaking too much about my own life, but if you're trying to engage young teenage boys, uh, a collection of wax anatomical models, some of which hidden behind curtains, does slightly play into um, teenage ideas of what the human body actually is. So I think that uh, with... With the collections here, there's all different ways of stimulating interest in them. And Welcome Collection is very, very keen to look at all the topics of science and art and their interaction, often at times in a very humorous and jokey way. Is there any mileage if I throw uh, suggestions of sensationalism at any of the, the sort of stuff that goes on? I was thinking of the wax models. You've got your German fellow with a hat. Oh, I wonder with the with the, the sort of the mortuary outlook, and I don't know, you, certainly from your past work, you might be able to say uh, something about whether there's a kind of a fetishization of some aspects of end of life. There, there, there is some difficulty with it. I think um, I always feel certainly that I'm trying to walk a very fine line. And with people such as Gunter von Hagens, who I think you mentioned, um, what he did, his process of of plastination was fantastic for creating anatomical specimens because it means that medical students can actually handle those specimens without gloves and they're completely sterile and they can be taken apart and that's a great way to learn but where it becomes salacious is when for example um, he's using parts of those bodies embedding them in resin and then selling them as a paperweight or there are also for example um 
models which are a man and a woman actually copulating and they've been sliced down the middle so you can see the the entrance um and and you you know this is where it becomes salacious and that's where you draw the line what's for education what's for public engagement and what's really just to get you some headlines and earn money yeah, I mean, it's. I think that, that's the intriguing thing about von Hagen's is where you situate him and sort of say this was this is going on now in the late twentieth century. Why is this taking place now? Is it to do with uh, a, a purious interest? Is it to do, to do the techniques and then play it backwards and work out was something similar going on before? And certainly, some of the anatomical museums in the late nineteenth century in London, there was an air of that to them that you would have, uh, even though they promote themselves as being quite virtuous and quite educative. Uh, they, they could at times receive visitors that were interested in the more salacious sides of seeing skin. Because I, I think this is very interesting now because I think there's been a bit of a change with science becoming entertainment. And I don't think this has really happened since the, the times of Michael Faraday. Where, or even, You talked about the, the, the public interest in death, public hangings. Mm. I mean, how incredibly mm. horrific yet so attractive were they? So science as entertainment, I think, has come into its own now. And I think part of it is from investment from uh, all these institutions like Wellcome and others who've actually made a decision to say science is fascinating and wonderful and interesting, uh, but let's stop treating it like the crown jewels. Let's allow a bit of levity, a bit of fun. Uh, And that's where things like Festival of the Spoken Nerd have completely... come into their own we're only able to do what we do because institutions support us and they say oh we love what you do because you can take real science and add uh, some fun as well and that's um something that i don't think has happened so much in previous times and for me um being at bots pathology museum it's always been my aim to marry up entertainment and science so I mean as an example if you say the word toxicology to somebody they think oh god what's all this about a bit boring <laughs> but it was the anniversary of Marilyn Monroe's death in August so I had a lecture it was called the life and death of Marilyn Monroe and we had a, a QMUL a Queen Mary uh, toxicologist discuss her death in toxicological terms and people were very interested but we also had a journalist who knew her in life and he talked about how she was as a person so the audience was made up of two completely different types of people the very educational, interested ones, and then the ones who were just interested in, in Marilyn Monroe. And I think that's a good thing to do with most topics. And then you, you, you get people, two different demographics, really, and then they can start to have a, a dialogue together. Well, just on, just on science communication, I mean, what's, what's interesting about almost tracing a history of science communication, even in this country and even just on TV, is if you don't have to go back too far and realise a lot of the programmes are very well made, but there's still a high level of entertainment in there. So the one that's not talked about as much as it could be, I mean, if you go back to the 70s, you've got Bernofsky doing The Ascent of Man, and that gets its DVD release and so on and so forth. But what doesn't get the acclaim as much as that is uh, James Burke's Connection series, which is is an astonishing way of doing the history of science, and slightly because he can draw almost anything together. It's almost like prog rock in its way. He's almost starting his guitar solo in one spot and finishing somewhere else because he can but it, it, it's, it's such a hugely entertaining series and one that hasn't had the, um, the revivalism that say, some, so let's say the work of Carl Sagan has had with, uh, with Brian Cox so the time of James Burke may be upon us you never know I'm looking at uh, half a skull <laughs> on the table before us it's a large picture I note that this article on Londonist.com attracted your attention as well uh, Carla and Ross what is it about this exhibition where, where are we going first of all what's the location for this okay so the um, the exhibition is at the Museum of London which is actually only five minutes away from Bart's Pathology Museum if everybody would like to come and have a double a double trip one day <laughs> um, and it's all about doctors dissection and resurrection men I think it's one of those buildings as well that the, the attractiveness of the Museum of London is arguably more in its collections and its exhibitions than uh, over its location. Yes, in the, in the vortex of London. I can't stand Barbican. I really can't. Oh, uh, we should have a look on our map. We've got a story about a map, which uh, Helen Arnie, I know, uh, captured your imagination particularly. Uh, this is a map of language in London, and maybe we can look at Barbican and see what's being spoken there on Twitter. Well, this is an f- incredible thing that's on the Londonist website right now. Uh, it is 3.3 million tweets 
have been analysed uh, and they have been put on a map. Now, not just the number of tweets have been analysed, uh, although each of them are represented on the map by a dot, the language has also been analysed. So uh, you've got English in grey, which is kind of fairly obvious, and that's interesting because it just sort of fades into the background. Uh, but other languages, uh, like Italian and French and German, and uh, what I find fascinating, Turkish, Malay. Uh, I had no idea there was that much Malay being tweeted. And Arabic as well. All of those are highlighted in different colours and scattered out across the map. And what's fascinating is you can see where people are tweeting the most, and it's often on roads as people tweet while they travel. Uh, but you can see the languages that they're tweeting in, these really odd gluts of certain languages in different places. There's this extraordinary massive glut of French in uh, Notting Hill. Yes, we're, we're looking at a big projection of it at the moment. It looks like tinsel or something like that laid out in, in ribbons. But yes, there's a big red bludge here and a couple more off to the west of it as well. And then you, you, there's some that I would expect to see from places that I lived. I used to live on Edgware Road. Uh, you can see all the, the uh, Arabic speakers uh, along Edgware Road. You, there's a huge flash of green uh, along that area and also a huge flash of green along Knightsbridge, which I think if you'd had this Twitter map 100 years ago, that would not have been there. Uh, around sort of South Kensington, around West... Well, not, not least because they wouldn't have been tweeting as much. <laughs> they were, that you could, it would be fascinating to see see the language information that you can see where certain um, uh, people are uh, and the, the areas of Knightsbridge of Edgware Road they, they are uh, very Arabic areas and that's something I've experienced having lived there uh, and having been to university around there and then there's sort of really odd little things you weren't expecting like sort of around Waterloo there's big f- uh, a big block of Italian um, is, is that the yellow we're looking at there? Yeah, that's the, the yellow there. Um, Why so many Italians around Waterloo? I've no idea. I, I, I guess the other thing you can interpret from this is that the, the language information you're getting is only from people who are tweeting. So that probably excludes the very young and some of the older people. So it'll mostly be sort of students, young professionals. Uh, those are the people who tweet the most. So I'm guessing this is slightly skewed towards young people and slightly skewed towards, for instance, students. Uh, And I'm pretty sure there are some language colleges around these sorts of areas. But it's absolutely fascinating. And it's so interesting how it does pick out the roads of London because people are tweeting on the move. Yes, as they walk into me. (laughs) They do. It has uh, happened uh, to me many times on the receiving and the giving end of walking into someone while you're tweeting. Is this Shepherd's Bush just here? Do you think there's a kind of triangle there? Would that be it? Well, that's fascinating because this is basically picking out what seems to be Westfield. And this is Westfield Shopping Centre. And this is the most variety of tweets. I mean, there's no other area on this map that is quite such a rainbow of one dot of every language. And that's what's really extraordinary about it. So Westfield Shopping Centre, the multicultural hub of London. <laughs> yes, Phil Marks for in- inclusivity there. And as we look up towards uh, kind of the green lanes and to Stokey. Yep, uh, Turkish. We noticed a lot of the, the colour for Turkish language around there, which uh, when I lived in Stokey, that was my uh, favourite greengrocers for all these fab Turkish places. I mean, they, they, they've only picked out six or seven languages, uh, but they are so fascinating to see where people are, are um, sort of glutting around these areas and you can you can uh, overlay uh, we've, we've got on another tab a Google map to see exactly where all these places are uh, I, I, I have only investigated for about half an hour I think that's the rest of my day gone Well done to uh, James and Ed at I think UCL for putting this one together, no evidence at all of the Amish constituency, very, very <laughs> peculiar I have to say actually when I first moved to London from Liverpool um, I was in Tooting and now I'm quite near Brick Lane so I'm used to, li- to London being quite cosmopolitan but I am wondering if there's a dot on there for Scousers because I'd really like to see where we all, where we all meet up. What, what would you be looking for in tweets as evidence of their Scousers? I don't know how you really type a sort of glittle R. I'm not sure. I'll do, I'll do some research. I'll come on again and we'll talk about it. Um, I've pulled something out from the library's collections here on that sort of mapping theme. I've pulled out uh, a print from 1832. This is beautiful. Because obviously, um, as we were saying earlier on, the, the collections are based around history medicine, but history medicine is myriad cultural and historical forms. So our art collections are one of the hidden joys uh, of, of, of London's libraries. And this is one from 1832, offering, offering an aeronautical view 
of London. And just on that sense of languages, the way this uh, print has been done with a view high from the sky looking back west from over the Pool of London, showing the snaking sort of U-shaped form uh, of the Thames. But right in the centre of the image are many trading ships that have come into London from, uh, from across the colonies, across the empire, from, from America, India, and so on and so forth. And to imagine the number of different languages of the people who'd have been uh, on those boats as well. I think if you could have had a Twitter map of London from 1832, uh, you would have had maybe more languages spoken than you might initially think. I think Wren would have loved this view as well because it's uh, the way it's been produced makes it look absolutely clinical. Absolutely. You really get the sense as well of uh, trying to sort of organise uh, the city and organise the streets. You're seeing the post-fire attempts to rebuild, but also the medieval city still coming through. And also a sort of, you know, a lost land in, uh, in South London as well. I mean, the, f- the, f- the nearest bit of uh, green field we can see uh, close to the river uh, is in South London, uh, a very different cityscape to what we're used to nowadays. Ross, you've promised us some other delights from the collection here as well. Should we go and take a look at this? Absolutely, yeah. This does look like it is something that is completely underwhelming. It's a small scrap of paper uh, with ink writing upon it. We can see at the top of the page uh, a date, and that is 19th of June, 1665. And the reason why I wanted to uh, bring this out today is it's something that speaks about uh, historical evidence and about how almost the smallest items that you can imagine say something uh, at times very emotional and very deep to us about history, and particularly London's history just here. What this is, is a letter from a man called John Moore, as I say, dated 19th of June 1665, writing to uh, his brother who is in the countryside out with of London. And the reason why he's writing to him and the reason why the brother is out with of London is that this is the start of the plague. People are starting to die. The stats, that's what we've got here, quoting from the letter. Uh, 17 died one week, 43 next, and last week 112 of the plague. So you get a sense of the, um, how you can drill down to specific times and dates through archival uh, manuscripts and uh, archival uh, material. Can we get a bit of a flavour of uh, what a man has to say? We know how devastating the plague is. John Moore does not know uh, how devastating it will be. He's starting to see the the deaths increase, and the next week afterwards it would shoot up uh, alarmingly so. And so this is, this is, in some ways, as much as we know about this individual from this document. But what we do know after this is he eventually becomes Lord Mayor of London. Um, loving brother, I hope these lines will find you and yours and all our friends in the country well. So that's the first sentence. So he's hoping his his, uh, his relations are still alive and still doing well. And bef- and after that, it starts to sort of to to describe how things are going in the city. That's rather an ordinary opening, really, isn't it? But uh, packed with meaning in this context. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, now, knowing young persons as most uh, go to take infection, though good to give you an accomplishment of it. Have you advice about? cousin john so you know he's starting to ask about other members of the family as well so this is this is a letter from somebody concerned about the health of the people who he knows have moved away from the city but also bringing news of how a plague is starting to strike at the heart of london i think the um the plague in london is obviously a really interesting topic but even when you go further back and you sort of track its progress through Europe um, it's quite interesting that you find these small groups such as the flagellants who used to sort of be around the Rhine and they would flagellate themselves and cause themselves pain and punch each other in in the hopes that this kind of masochism was going to appease God and he would spare them from the plague so I think it's quite interesting the different cultures and how people react to something such as the plague there's quite a lot of, of interest in reading around a topic like this. Medicine in a sort of period like this, like so much of life at the time is so embedded within a world uh, described by religion and you can't separate out uh, religion and science in that well, way. Well let me ask how far back do you have to go before they do become separated is there a point? I know for example is it trepanning, trefining was all about letting evil spirits out so not religious but spiritual. So much of the early thought is about notions of how the body is related to uh, the stars and the heavens above so I must have a world beneath the moon and a world above the moon and these two worlds are intimately linked so people at this time knew that uh, the uh, the 
the moon could affect uh, the tides, they knew that the sun could affect the growth of crops on land. Why shouldn't the stars in the sky not affect life of humans on, on Earth as well? So that, that, this is why astrology is such a key part of people's beliefs for many, many centuries. I think when we talk about trepanning or, or trepanation, as you say, it's, it's quite interesting because now we think of ourselves as being very enlightened and understanding science, but there are still people that practice that. Um, and we actually have some um, specimens of some skulls. that They're old, they're sort of 1800s, but it is still something that's commonly practised amongst some people because there are still people that think, well, holistic medicine is a good idea, herbal medicine is a good idea. If it was good enough for our ancestors, then why not for us? So I think there's never really going to be a separation between the two. There there's always you know that 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 aspect of science that's slightly spiritual it's it's often forgotten that science is a human endeavor without humans the universe would just be carrying on quite happily without anyone understanding what is going on but it's because of humans desire to understand what what we are who we are our place in the universe that is what has created science this is only one way of looking at it but it's i for me it's the strongest one, that science is a human endeavour, so you cannot separate humans from science. You cannot just say science is science and humans and spirituality and, and everything else to do with your lives is separate because science is a part of humanity. And to deny all these, the stories and to deny all of the involvement of, of all that humans are in science is, I think, missing the point mm. of science. So, so, so the ideas evolve... Uh, at a rate that's got nothing to do with the evolution of, for example, the natural world or something like that. Yeah, yeah and it's exactly right. As you say, if it's a human endeavour and we created science to understand the world, we also created religion to understand the world. That was what early religion was. So I, I, I totally agree with, with uh, Helen. There's no way you can separate it. I want to know what those two cushions are for. Oh, right. Um, I, just, but just briefly on sort of where, where we are with Are we about to do a trepanning? Hang on. Uh, is this, yeah, is I, this a headrest? Under this table, I, 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 will, I will have a drill. But if you think of the formation of the Royal Society around this time as well, um, what's interesting about that is that is the context where I'm doing the lecture in a couple of weeks' time. It is at the Royal Society on... Uh, the collectors who collected for Henry Wellcome. So who were the sort of people who were uh, finding religious relics and why were they coming into Wellcome's collection uh, during the early 20th century? But the reason I have got those cushions is to use them in a safe way. Carla, if you could just pop your head there, please. (laughs) Is to... (laughs) And uh, I just, I'm the expert with the tools. I, <laughs> oh, that's true. I, I just get the drill out now. So what I've got here, if I can just rest this. Uh, Ross is opening a, a small, neat notebook with uh, spidery handwriting. It's not from Prince Charles, is it? Rest that there. What we've got here is a notebook from 1858. And this is, again, uh, one of the items from our collections with a direct uh, relevance to London's past. Often the material that we have here is very personal uh, in detail. So this is a a diary of a man called um, uh, John Patterson, who was a teacher of the deaf and dumb in Manchester. And so we have his diary accounts of his teaching uh, in Manchester. But what's really interesting from a London point of view is London is where he spends his Christmas in 1858. Why is that interesting? Well, it's because he goes for some long walks in 1858 at Christmas time. He comes to London and basically sees as much of London as he can. So he's staying in uh, accommodation in Camden. So decides to walk from Camden one day to Greenwich uh, and back. And he does so via Westminster Abbey, uh, through uh, the middle of town, through a myriad of churches, through the city of London, through the East End, and down to Greenwich and back again. And we have a very, very detailed account of uh, his journey there. And it's so detailed that uh, a couple of years ago, back in 2009, we actually had um, a Londonist organised walk tracing Patterson's footsteps. Uh, from Camden uh, to uh, to Greenwich and back, and that was uh, that was one of those uh, great days in London when it was wintry, and it was one of those almost the first day we really had snow again. We've had sort of large snowfalls over the last few years, and I can remember the walk finishing, almost trudging through snow to get to. Uh, we still we stopped we stopped at Tower Hill. We thought it was a fair sort of accomplishment to to finish up there. Can we have a bit of a reading from it? Sure. Uh, what have we got here? So let's have a look. James II's monument next into Charing Cross. Uh, saw Charles II uh, and then Trafalgar Square, Nelson's Column, 
um, Jenner's statue, National Gallery, St. Martin's Church, Church, uh, Church. next through um, Lower Arcade and came to Hungerford Market and Bridge Suspension, came out into the Strand, saw uh, Exeter Hall and Southampton Street through Covent Garden Market, saw the St. Paul's Church and Covent Garden, Andrew D. Lane Theatres. We went down Wellington Street, saw uh, Mackey's um, into... Uh, and a little below uh, the Lyceum Theatre. So you get the sense of somebody almost... Uh, almost you, you, you imagine sort of Parrish almost live-tweeting his sort of journey nowadays. Yes, it, it's got exactly that feel, hasn't it? Not, not the most thrilling narrative, perhaps, but very yeah, but, thorough. Uh, I mean, to be honest, he's crammed in more than most London tourists manage. He, in fact, he's crammed in more than most London residents manage in that's the true. first year they're in London. Uh, that's absolutely incredible. Fantastic. We're on to our third and final exhibit, which is being folded open to reveal a picture of London. What I've got here is something we've talked about, illness in different forms, but this is something just to represent uh, mental illness. So this is a plan and a drawing of what would have been one of the largest asylums, not only in London, but in the country in the late 19th century. This is Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum at Colney Hatch. So you get the sense from this drawing of the huge vista of the building, but also get a sense as well of the numbers of people who would have been admitted to this asylum uh, during this time. That is vast. How many people could it take? Oh, goodness me, this is a couple of hundred you could fit in there quite easily. And it's now as a way of many um, ex-asylums across London's uh, outskirts, it's now luxury flats. Uh, I like to think that if you want to define one way of looking at uh, the borders of London, uh, I think we can do a side with the M25 and just join the dots between ex-asylums and harvester pubs. <laughs> I was going to ask a question about uh, handling the, the memory of people who've passed, which I think the new development singly fails to do. But really, Carla, I think this must be your specialist area. What immediately came to my mind was Bedlam or, or Bethlehem, which is one of the more famous mental hospitals. Um, we actually have a lecture about that on um, sometime in November, I think it's the 14th, and that's at St. Bart's, where, where I'm from. And um, Sarah Cheney, who works at Bedlam, is going to be talking all about treatment of people with mental problems and so that'll be quite an interesting one um, and I have to admit you know I, I don't know a lot about it myself we we have several lobotomy um, specimens in the museum and I'd always thought they were from around sort of 1800 and something I was quite interested when I read that lobotomies were more common in 30s 40s 50s really had no idea about that so I think it's going to be a really an interesting talk um, you know and, and definitely you know that was an interesting picture. We talked earlier about not sensationalising death. I've just realised, Carla, that you've got uh, edible fake blood coming up at one of your gigs soon, haven't you? It's true, yes, we do. We have uh, ingestible fake blood, which has been created for us by a company called Animal Vegetable Mineral, or AVM Curiosities. And this is part of our Halloween um, lecture called Women with Bite. So again, it's the, the technique of getting science and popular culture to sort of interact in one evening. Of course, Halloween is obviously the, the night of the vampire, but what people don't know is that National Pathology Year actually have a, a yearly calendar of topics and November is their blood month and it's all about raising awareness with blood. So we have the lecture, um, but it's not just about the vampires, it's not just about the edible blood, we've actually got um, the NHS um, blood people come in to do a stand, they're going to talk about blood donation and that's really the whole reason that we're having the, the lecture, it's, it's a mixture of the two. There's a whole load of stuff going on uh, as well that we could talk about. There's, there's dancing breasts that I think we're not going to get a chance to talk about, much to the uh, dismay of uh, a certain constituency among our listeners. I think just imagine it, I think it's the best thing. Well, I don't know if that's a fair representation of what Carla wanted to tell us about. Can, can you do it in a, in a nugget? Yes, I can. It's technically it's called a flash mob, which is quite apt, I think. Um, it's from a charity called Copperfield who are aimed at breast checking for cancer for younger people and they're actually going to be at my pathology museum on Sunday as part of our Eat Your Heart Out with the anatomical cakes. Good, okay. We've got a brace of stories still to crack through here. Now, what do we fancy? Oh, I know, here's a good idea. They've managed to get the number of fires down in London over the last few years. They've managed to cut fires by 50% over the past decade and fatality rates have gone down by a third. So what are they going to do, Helen Arnie? 
<laughs> Apparently, going to close 17 fire stations. There we go. That's 17 more for more harvesters for <laughs> for London. Uh, that I, I don't know what to, s- well, to say about this. Yes, <laughs> if you live in Acton, Bow, Belsize, Clapham, Clerkenwell, Downham, Islington, Kensington, Kingsland, Knightsbridge, Newcross, Peckham, Silvertown, Southwark, Westminster, Whitechapel, and or Woolwich, you may have multiple properties. I don't know. There's potentially going to be an increased uh, risk of fire because the London Fire and Emergency Planning Authority is looking to save over £65 million in government-imposed cuts. There is speculation that Boris Johnson wanted to uh, to do this. He's denied it in a rather bad-tempered way. He's insisted closures would not be accompanied by a reduction in safety, though, so that's all right. I'm just wondering if there are any firemen or actors playing firemen at the Olympic opening ceremony, and if Boris's plan is actually possibly to replace them with the actors who played the uh, played the farming because this could be a way forward with also regards to the NHS so there was plenty of uh, actors uh, playing nurses then as well um, maybe because of the success of the Olympics Boris is maybe redesigning his view of London based upon that he actually thought the whole thing was real well they did without a hospital entirely didn't they so we can we can get rid of that first of all yes it's been a funny sort of week for this kind of thing because the the company that uh, manufactures the London black taxi cab gone out of business gone into administration i should say and i can't quite work out how a company that's got a monopoly over something manages to do that badly i i'm somebody who knows a few cabbies uh and there's a whole discussion about the redevelopment of the tx2s to the tx4s and cabbies were aware of problems with the tx4s uh, a while ago and it's all coming through now so I'm not sure what the future uh, leads for this. Again possibly there may be some voices um, saying we should do away with only uh, the, the movable taxis and move back possibly with uh, thoughts of the fog of recent days to possibly uh, handsome cabs again. Oh I think if, uh, if um, some people could uh, suggest a given sort of uh, return to the values that uh, Boris and other conservatives are suggesting, a, a return to Victorian London may be in operation so uh, so I, I don't know. I think there may be there may be a future for tourism as well for introducing. If you could travel to the two two one B Baker Street via hansom cab, then there may be a market for that as well. Well, it should be a lot easier to walk, like your man in the diary. There, there's uh, not going to be so much traffic on the roads given the last two stories. I have to say though, I think a return to Victorian London. Some of the aspects of that would be fantastic. I'm a big Oscar Wilde fan. I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. And I, don't, I don't think we can actually bring those people back though. I don't think it goes that. <laughs> Only in our sort of mythical dinner parties where we say which guests would we like to have. Can we have all, all of the cool stuff? and less of the rickets. Yes, that's exactly what I That would Although, be really good. I have to say, from a, as, a, as a scientist, rickets is actually on the increase at the moment, particularly amongst um, people who live in areas like Whitechapel, um, who come from hotter countries, who wear the hijabs, and they don't get enough vitamin D, and so now rickets is on the rise. Same goes with TB, apparently. Yes, that's absolutely true, yeah. And bedbugs. We are literally going back in time. <laughs> this is actually what is genuinely happening. This is, this is incredible. I was just thinking before with the reading that um, Ross did, and obviously the fire station's closing down, then perhaps we're ready for a great fire of London 2066. Ooh, although there was that fantastic... Uh, you mentioned it on Londoners, didn't follow it. They, they tweeted live the fire of London. They tweeted the Houses of Parliament burning down in real time on the anniversary of it actually happening. And that is is one of the reasons I'm obsessed with Twitter. Only in that forum can that happen. So many people can be involved in that moment of history. Point of order, the Houses of Parliament didn't burn down in the Great Fire of London. Whichever one it was. I didn't read it properly. I didn't read it properly. I didn't see it. No, it just it burns down in the 19th century, and arguably it's due to uh, bad record-keeping. Uh, the wooden sticks they used to uh, tally tally things in, in, in the Houses of Parliament. A fire caught there in the basement. They were trying to dispose of the tally sticks. The fire, fire quickly grew, and uh, the building burned down uh, around that time. So it's, yeah, I, I'm, uh, the, the pedant within me has now come out. No. My apologies absolutely, to all. Absolutely. I read it wrong. It was the burning of the, the Houses of Parliament, not the Great Fire of London. Uh, but that looked fascinating. I mean, but now, if, uh, well, nowadays, uh, all you need to do is leave a laptop in the back of a cab and you've lost the entire <laughs> resources of the Houses of Parliament. So, in fact, it's a lot more efficient nowadays to get rid of parliamentary information. I think this, the whole danger is the fact that we are slowly becoming uh, and realising we're actually in a giant episode of the thick of it and our, li- <laughs> our lives are being directed by Armando Iannucci. Uh, an, an actor is playing Boris Johnson. It's, that may be the way that things can be explained.
that hilariously you can combine history of medicine and the thick of it which is uh, a couple of years ago in 2007 I think it was Radio 4 had a series called The Making of Modern Medicine a great 30 part series on medicine development uh, written by an historian called Andy Cunningham the voices of from medicine's past were voiced by uh, a number of good actors and many of the Scottish doctors from medicine's past were voiced by um, Peter Capaldi the voice and the <laughs> of Malcolm Tucker. Unfortunately, there's not an 18-rated version uh, with him doing Malcolm Tucker playing John Hunter and William Hunter. <laughs> Alas, no. <laughs> We're coming up with a lot of decent ideas for somebody today, I think. Yeah. <laughs> a quick mention of our sponsors this week. We're delighted to be sponsored by audible.co.uk. There's a fantastic deal here, which I've taken advantage of. I'm currently listening to the Hilary Mantel Booker winner, second Booker winner from her. Teamed up with audible.co.uk co.uk we have and they are offering you a free digital audiobook from their expansive catalogue you can choose any title from their online library of over 60,000 digital audiobooks with a special 30-day free trial of the audible service and that audiobook can be listened to on everything that plays mp3 files so your ipod iphone ipad other phones are available Uh, mp3 players you can burn it to a cd you can listen to it in a car you can stick it on a flash drive whatever you fancy Uh, and it's yours to keep for good of course as is your free audiobook, whether you decide to cancel in your trial period or not. All you need to do to get that free audiobook is to go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Uh, stories we haven't had time to, uh, to get to. Could Eros be wrapped in a snow globe for Christmas, says this uh, story, with a, a gaping error for anybody who's particularly attentive to the name of the statue, which is in fact not Eros. Ross has gestured in a way that suggested he knew the real name. And has now forgotten it. I know. I actually heard this on QI, which is where I get all my dinner party conversation, and I can't remember the name either. (laughs) Is it called Freedom of Something or some kind of... No? Well, do you know what? I think I'm going to do a uh, rare teaser here and suggest that you go to the story on Londonist. The story's called Could Eros Be Wrapped in a Snow Globe for Christmas? There's a big picture of it, and you can click through and find out what Eros is actually called. (laughs) Yes, sneaky. I I discovered something the other day. No, this is is my little uh, fact to compete with the pedantry. Uh, The word internet uh, was not uh, a... Let me get this right. It was a noun, not a verb. Have I got this right? So as, in, you, as in I am now going to internet? Yes, it was for internetworking. So that's what it stood for. So you would not uh, Google something on the internet because you would internet something using the Google. That's what you should uh, actually, that's how you should phrase it. So uh, that's my little bit of pedantry. Anyone who says look it up on the internet, they should be internetting it on the Google. My life's been turned upside down. Sounds like something my uncle or my grandma would say, I think. I'm using the Google. Yes, I'm looking at the television. Well, they are, they are closer to the original usage of the word, so perhaps they know it better than we do. <laughs> I don't think they do. Uh, <laughs> London's income inequality by Barrow. There's a wonderful... Th- I think we'd like to unpack this in a little more detail. Some very interesting stuff. Again, reminiscent of those Victorian uh, poor maps. And uh, they've broken it down to Barrow and Ward level so that you can see where the folk without too much income uh, living and it's some surprising results we'll talk more about that in future weeks i think uh, finally were the olympics good for london i was at the edinburgh fringe for the entire you don't olympics, care so carla carla doesn't know ross it's all down to you <laughs> yes good uh, <laughs> right the, the, and so are the paralympics yeah this yes, is it. Yes, I, very much I, so. I enjoyed the paralympics so much because i was at the edinburgh fringe for the entirety of the the Olympics, Olympics, but I was back in time for the Paralympics, and it felt like such a different thing from the attitude of the people around me and the people that I spoke to. It's like the Olympics was the tourist Olympics. That was for everyone to come to our city and see how fabulous it was, but the Paralympics was the Londoners Olympics, and it was the one where we could get all the tickets to it, and we could afford the tickets to it, and it was just such a joy. Every single event I went to was completely rammed, absolutely incredible athletes doing incredible things we saw the cycling uh, the triple cycling um, team sprint uh, we saw the British team break the world record oh after five other different teams had broken the Paralympic record because it's been four, li- four years since the last Paralympics and, and how much has the technology and the work of the athletes leapt on so five Olympic record, Paralympic records were broken in a row and then just after the British team the Chinese team beat the British Paralympic record by something like 0.00 
three <laughs> seconds to become Paralympic gold medalist. Uh, th- that is the kind of thing that you cannot experience sitting in front of your telly at home. And I'm so incredibly pleased that I got a chance to see it. I'm almost more excited by the timekeeping, though. That's quite impressive to, to be able to split it to, as finely. Seriously, as it's the, th- the thousandths of the second. It was what it came down to. Without that kind of technology, without that ability to, to measure it, it would have been a, a you know two silvers score draw. Russ was half right, according to uh, Londonist. Yes, great. It was a success, the Olympics, uh, on the basis of volunteering marriage. Marriage, an online divorce company, reported a 25% drop in divorce inquiries uh, (laughs) during the Olympics. Staff morale, uh, the Olympic movement was happy, attitudes to disability, we've talked about transport, great, we proved that we can actually uh, run a transport network, shame, it's all gone belly up now, closed at weekends. Danny Boyle, Boris Johnson, jobs and the Londonist, which, uh, which achieved a massive increase in hits. Uh, things which didn't go so well during uh, London 2012, London Zoo, Kew Gardens and the Tower of London's attendance. London Pleasure Gardens, which is a dive-bombed. Bookies, uh, which is weird during a sporting festival, apparently <laughs> saw a 4.9% drop. Um, bigots didn't do very well, and uh, we'll say nothing about G4S. The strangest one, though, here is Tower Hamlets. The borough lost the marathon, becoming the only Olympic borough not to host any Olympic events. Well done, somebody there. And <laughs> according to West End Shops and Hospitality Operators, the income was down there. But of course, the jury's out on the big one here, which is the wider British economy. There's so many things that need to be factored in to find out whether the £9.3 billion public expenditure was money well spent or not. I think going by these statistics from previous Olympics in different cities, though, they tend to see the rise in the economy after the Olympics has happened in sort of a an exponential um, graph but one thing I will say is that um, I think it's done a lot for role models certainly female role models and I know that the first time that we've had female athletes on the covers of magazines which I think is definitely a positive point. Well I thoroughly agree with that and we're we're so close against the clock that we're going to have to there's there's a couple of things I really want to know about um, including including this uh, inscrutable cake organisation to which you belong, Carla. I'm hoping we're going to squeeze that in as we uh, as we rustle around to see where people can find out more about you all before we move into the agony that is the historical quiz. Helenana, you're you're currently on tour, and uh, snubbing would be attendees because you're sold out, which is I'm brilliant. Sorry, we we are doing one show in London on our national tour. Uh, it's on the 12th of November. It's at the Royal Albert Hall, not the big room, the little room upstairs. My PR agent does not want me to tell people that, but it's sold out. Uh, we are hoping to put an extra date on, so if you go to festivalofthespokennerd.com, if you sign up on our mailing list, we will tell you when that goes on sale. But other than that, we are in all sorts of uh, places from Sheffield and uh, uh, Cambridge to Nottingham, and uh, I think we're in Cheltenham on Halloween night. Oh, brilliant. Okay. And you, I know you're in uh, the Bloomsbury Theatre as well at some point. Yeah, in January we are doing a show, Life O Life, which is actually, hopefully we're going to include some stuff inspired by the Olympics, because the Olympics was also a big win for science. I think it was the one thing missing off your list of positives from the Olympics. I mean, and, uh, the combined opening and closing ceremonies of the Olympics and Paralympics included Tim Berners-Lee, Stephen Hawking, a giant apple, Brunel. I mean, what a win for science uh, and all that is great about uh, about British science. I mean, fantastic. So our show in January 21st, 22nd uh, at the Bloomsbury Theatre, it's called Life O Life. So it's not just going to be about biology. It's going to be about transhumanism. It's going to be about artificial intelligence. It's going to be about uh, 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 probably bladder infections. <laughs> it's, it's about time we had a show about transhumanism. Uh, what's the website for, for you guys? Yeah, for us, it's festivalofthespokennerd.com. Uh, if you know anyone in any of the cities we're touring, please let them know. Or come to our totally new show uh, in January on the 21st and 22nd. I know you want to talk about your events, Carla. Um, I want to talk about your cakes. Well, I can see your bladder infection, and I can raise you STDs, um, polycystic kidneys, um, and I can raise you these in cakes. So basically, um, Eat Your Heart Out is a anatomical cake shop. It's the brainchild of a collaboration between myself and Miss Cakehead, who is a an ideas genius, um, and she's had a very similar um, event in 2010. All the cakes are 100% anatomical. They're going to be um, sold to the public in my pathology museum over the course of three days from the 26th to the 28th of October Um, but the point of the cake festival is that we are trying to engage the public with pathology with anatomy Um, and so over the three days we're going to have different lectures about things like organ donation how to check your breasts um, prostate cancer
cancer, um, the dangers of STDs, and also careers in medicine, things like how to become an anatomical illustrator or a pathology technician or an embalmer or a doctor. So there is a serious side, but the cakes are incredible. And actually... I'm looking here at the wax picture of a, a skull with its flesh off from the, uh, the Doctor's Dissection and Resurrection Men. Um, we have a baker called the Kitchen Kundra, and she has recreated that nearly exactly in marzipan as one of her show cakes. These cakes are incredible. They are so realistic. Um, there are cupcakes, there are edible blood midget gems, and all kinds on sale, so do come down and take a look. At the moment, you can follow Bart's at Bart's Pathology on Twitter, and that's where you'll get most of the information. Um, I've actually only been at Bart's for a year. I started on Halloween last year, interestingly, <laughs> and before then the place was in ruin and we didn't have a website. So if you follow us at Bart's Pathology, then we can give you the information by email. I still can't work out whether any of what you've just said is real. It sounds <laughs> insane. <laughs> it's absolutely real. As I say, I'm a mortician and I run a cake club and I'm in the WI, so for me, death and cakes goes together hand in hand. It might not for everybody else, but you will agree with me when by the time this is over with. Can you trump that, Russ? Well, uh, a connection between uh, cakes and the Welcome Library's collections is our uh, collection of 17th century domestic remedy manuscripts, which feature not only recipes for uh, thoughts on how to cure illness, but also feature recipes on foodstuffs and uh, drinks. So we recently had at the Welcome Trust one of our chefs make one of the cake recipes from one of these 17th century uh, manuscripts, and the cakes were very nice. So there is a whole history as well of how nutrition and food and health and uh, disease all intersect and interact. What, what, what would you compare these cakes to? Uh, is there a modern-day analogue? Um, the, 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 there was cake recipes there, but he actually went for uh, the safe option of uh, an equivalent of shortbread biscuits when all said and done. Uh, but there is some very nice uh, designs of, of cakes in there, some of which uh, have quite interesting spices in there because these recipes have been written uh, when more spices are coming into the country in the 17th century in, into England. And people who want to hear about the history of medicine? Yeah, I'm speaking at the Royal Society on the 2nd of November at 1pm on uh, Wellcome's collectors, the people who collected material for Henry Wellcome. It wasn't a one-man operation. More on the history of medicine in London is at the London Historians Group on the 30th of October. The and, and these events, I should ju- I'll just say, mm-hmm. the, these events, are they free for people to walk into? They have to be a member of something? Not at all. The Royal Society event, you can just turn up one, one o'clock at the Royal Society in Carlton House Terrence. 30th of October, London Historians Group is meeting in the Bell Pub in Aldgate, having a whole evening of talks and a discussion on history of medicine in London and my colleague Dr Chris Hilton is speaking that evening on that topic and it was mentioned earlier on the death exhibition opens at Welcome Collection the 15th of November and more important than all of that is the fact that today that we can announce that Welcome Collection is expanding and developing Um, 30% more gallery space to be added over the next couple of years a huge transformation of this building and an even better library as well so shows such as Exquisite Bodies or shows such as Superhuman which uh, thought about human development during the time uh, of the Olympics over the summer those shows were very very successful having more and more people come to this building we want to tell more and more people about our collections and and this is the best way of doing so we're going to transform this building tell more stories, show more items and get more people through our doors well from what we've seen today i can only imagine that there'll be people breaking your door down which you can use some of that new funder to to replace the door um <laughs> great stuff coming up here this is it sounds fantastic so let's uh, let's see what you got now the historical quiz it's a this week in london thing hang on can, can we can we go in teams and i can can i have ross on my team This does not build well. This no, 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 no. I've got an idea. How about us three go on a team against N. Quentin Wolf? Oh, no, but he's got the he's answers. Got the oh, answers. no. I'm quite happy with that arrangement. Oh. <laughs> no, but last time you got me doing a quiz, someone ended up with negative points. Do you not remember? Oh, I remember it very clearly, yes. Let's see how you get on this time. <laughs> Don't come to me with your troubles. <laughs> Killer questions today as well. Here we go. Monday, the 22nd of October, 1809. The Croydon Canal, linking Croydon to Deptford via Forest Hill, is opened. It requires 28 locks to overcome the gradients of the route, but it didn't become a commercial success. In fact, how long was it before it closed? Opened in 1809, how many years before it closed? I'm going to say one, I have no idea. Let's go for ten. Ten years, uh, Ross's bit. This isn't, this isn't actually a history quiz, this is just a sort of statistics quiz. We're just, <laughs> we're just guessing a number. And we're just, it could be—I mean, it could be anything. I mean, I'm going to go exactly. It couldn't, it coun't be anything. Go, no. Uh, no, no, no. It, it, 
There, there are limiting a, factors. There, are, there is a finite number of numbers. All right. So what I'm going to do is you've said one, you've said ten. I'm going to. You've go, said one. I said one. Yeah. 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 I'm going to go five point five smack in the middle. <laughs> Ross, you're, you're the closest. It's actually thirty-seven years, so it wasn't very close at all. A bad statistical oh. manipulation there from Helen Arney. 23rd of October, 1731, a fire breaks out in Ashburnham House in Westminster, damaging much of the Cotton Library, a renowned collection of Middle English literature. Prompt action by whom manages to save about three quarters of the collection? The uh, the fire station would now close by the recent, <laughs> as reported by Londonist. <laughs> is is Hans Sloan dead by this point? Do you know what? I've no idea. Let me just consult my uh, it's, it's Hans my Hans Sloan biography. What what did Hans Sloan do? Because it's a job title they're looking for. No, it's, well, he, Hans Sloan had a lot of the books that became part of the British Library's collections. Probably not those books, though. We're, we're looking for a job title rather than a person's All right, name. So not Hans Solo, which, which is what, what we I thought. Um, I think if this was QI, I'd be Alan Davis. So I'm just going to take a back seat, really. Here, um, I'll go for the guy. Have, have a go at a jo- no, hold on. Carlos appealing for a bit of assistance here. Look, it's it's Ashburnham House. In in Westminster. Uh, think of uh, job titles in Westminster. If you the take guy that runs the cathedral. I'm, I'm not from London, and that's what I'm, I'm just going to use that. Basically. It is not the guy that runs the cathedral. <laughs> it's a, a good description. But if you, if you take Speaker of the House of Commons. Yes, back of the net. Ross, Ross is there, Speaker of the House the one, of Commons. The one thing, I think it's the, that's the fire that the, um, the manuscript of Beowulf that the British Library has, it gets singed during that fire. Huh. <laughs> Ross is looking good at the moment. I think, yeah. If this was QI, I think that he would be John Sessions, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> 24th of October 2003. The final flight of what touches down at Heathrow Airport? Concord. Concord. Yeah, I think that was Ross again. Uh, you got it, but you, you got it a bit slow, so I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you half a point. And Helen sitting nearest me is starting to get angsty about all of this. No, no, it's just you literally are being Alan Davis. You're like, please give me a point. I'm so cute. I, I, I the microphone wasn't quite pointing at me. And did say if it's not pointing, you won't be able to hear me. So I just waited there, just a, a short half second. So you were being polite, that's yes, why. that's all. I was being polite. It was Concord. And you've mocked the cake lady, Helen. Not, That's I've a minus, minus point for you. I've mocked Alan Davey. Okay, let's just step Ross, three, you two, nothing. <laughs> That's the state of affairs here. 25th, 25th of October, 1976. Which London arts institution is opened by the Queen following several years of delays? Royal Academy. No. Nope. Is it the Hayward? You are extremely close, but wrong. Geographically close, or...? NFT. NFT? It's not the NFT. You're still extremely close. Uh, how, how many guesses does he get for these points? You, <laughs> as many as you. Keep going. Somebody say the Hall or the South Bank. Uh, no, neither of those. Still very, very close. National Theatre? Yes. Oh, Just a process of elimination there. Yes. Oh. yes, we've done all the buildings on the South Bank now. One to Helen Arnie. 26th of October 1992, a computer-aided dispatch system is introduced at London's ambulance service. And this is going to... I need your imaginations here. How do things go? And I'm going to give you uh, three points for the most accurate, detailed scenario. The ambulances start to drive around London and try and shoot space invaders or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I want it to be true. Is it like the opening, one of the, one of the key sequences from Carry On Nurse, and the, 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 the ambulance comes so fast into the hospital that one of the, uh, one of the beds comes out of the back of mm. the ambulance? With what? hilarious consequences. Do you, is it the same company who provides the service who also provides the service with Domino Pizza? <laughs> and... Uh, the, the, a few people um, get an ambulance when they were expecting a Hawaiian, and vice versa. I, I'm loving this round. <laughs> this is good. No, none of them right, but uh, what, what the key factor I'm after is uh, there was a bit of herring around London. That's completely the wrong end of the scale. What, what, what happened? No ambulances go at all. Yes, you're, you're much closer. Yeah. Massive delays. Are they all sitting there just going like, hashtag no accidents tonight? <laughs> Are they, do, do they all auto-tweet that they're all having a, oh, back at work, cup of tea? But your conception of history seems to involve Twitter throughout the ages. <laughs> this always, is 1992. There's always been Twitter, hasn't there? <laughs> hasn't there? Oh, no, post, post-its, all right, post-its. <laughs> That's all we have to Twitter. You used to have people, yeah, sort of uh, 
boys being sent with messages around London with yeah. silver salvers. That yeah. is really the forerunner of Twitter. I'm, yeah. e- I'm eating a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think Ross has probably yeah, got it, if, if any of you have. There were massive delays in assigning ambulances to calls, and 30 people died. Um, yes, a, an uplifting end to the historical quiz, which, <laughs> in which Ross McFarlane has triumphed. Thank God he's thinking. Otherwise, that would have been shameful. Helen Arney has scored a whole point. Oh, no, but I wanted to do something. Can I donate my point to Carla for being rude to her? Uh, and does that change the kilter? Does that mean that she's, she's got enough points to beat Ross? No, she's only got one. She's got your one. But now I feel uh, sorry for you. Because no, but there's no. You can have free cake now, so it, it works. You know, I wasn't going to win, so I might as well <laughs> donate my points to a good cause. So absolutely. I don't want a pity point. I have to say, none of the questions were on cakes or death, and I can't answer them in that case. <laughs> this is the this is the long tale of which I've heard so much. <laughs> Uh, we've come to the end of our time. Let's go once round before we say goodbye for Twitter, since we've. Talked about it so much. Quickly, Ross McFarlane. I'd follow the Welcome Library at Welcome Library. Helen Arney. I'm on Twitter at Helen Arney and at FOTSN, which is Festival of the Spoken Nerd. And Carla Connolly. If you'd like to come to our Halloween event and you can try some ingestible blurred, go to www.tinyurl.com slash Bartsbite. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Here she stands. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Ross McFarlane, Helen Arney and Carla Connolly. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.